Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, our head analyst, Rory Caron, and our financial analyst, Anne-Marie Kingsland. Today, we're talking about why Netflix's disappointing subscriber growth shouldn't concern investors, our thoughts on the recently IPO'd company, UiPath, and if our opinion has changed on Palantir since it first went public last summer. So guys, we actually have a celebrity in our midst today, Emmett, after your big appearance on CNBC on Monday. I actually wasn't sure you were going to turn up to our humble podcast today. Yeah, how do we book him? (laughs) How do you get rid of me? Who's your agent? (laughs) Who's representing you now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Emmett, one thing I did notice was that on the last podcast, you said that you never prepared for Stock Club and you seemed pretty prepared for CNBC. So I'm just kind of curious about how much prep you actually put into this outside competitors show. Well, you're right. Well, the first thing is CNBC is live. So you better have your facts down. Um, Whereas at least if we fluff something here, we can go, hey, let's do that again. Although I have to say in our 50 plus podcasts we, we've almost never done that but anyway yeah i was well prepared and as the interview was on monday i spent a large part of the weekend studying tesla's last few quarterly earnings calls but as street science is a topical show it's all about the now so i didn't really get a chance to say uh you know that thanks to advances in autonomous driving and wireless charging i think that someday it will make sense for tesla not to sell cars at all yeah, <laughs> I had a bigger picture view, but really the whole piece was about, so what do you think Elon's going to say in 10 hours or whatever, in five hours, whatever the time was? Well, see, Emmett, that's the difference here. You can say it on a show like this. We, we have a bit more creative space on a show like this. I think we figured out how to get him to prep, James. Just to yeah, it that's it. <laughs> just bill, we'll just Bill O'Reilly it. <laughs> well, Emmett, you, you, you were talking about Tesla's upcoming earnings report and the company has since reported. Was there anything um, that stood out to you in the results? Uh, not especially. I mean, they reported their seventh consecutive profitable quarter. They moved 185,000 cars. Uh, which is about twice the number sold at the same time last year. They made about $438 million profit, which is $0.39 cent a share, which, as the piece on CNBC zoomed in on, was, was aided in large part from selling regulatory credit yeah. sales. So so one thing is that Tesla sells as many uh, carbon credits as it wants or as it needs in order to produce a profit. And it really, for me, feels like Amazon, where I think Rory, many podcasts ago said something to the effect of that Jeff Bezos is like um, if you're going into competition with Jeff Bezos feels like going diving deep sea diving with him you just he has the biggest oxygen tank and with Tesla they can decide how profitable they want to be in the next quarter by the number of uh, of carbon credits they sell yeah. so really the the this story that we're handed at the end of each quarter is far less relevant to the big picture 
Absolutely. Well, we spoke about earnings there, so let's move on and talk about Netflix, which of course is one of the first kind of big tech companies to report their earnings last week. It made for pretty dismal reading, however, with a massive miss on new subscriber additions reported in the first quarter of the year. 4 million versus an expected 6 million, and only 1 million net additions forecast for the current quarter. While a lot of this might seem like a worry for investors, Netflix stock down almost 10% since the report. The company is having success elsewhere. On Sunday night, for example, the studio won seven uh, Academy Awards for movies like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Mank. Emmett, you're the resident Netflix bull here in my Wall Street. What are your thoughts on the company's differing fortunes on the books and then on the screen? Yeah, well, Netflix and Tesla are my two biggest holdings and on any day they're neck and neck. So on any day, I'm the one probably with the biggest interest in them, uh, yeah. certainly in my Wall Street. So just, as you said, so uh, Netflix today is a 226 billion dollar business which just to frame i always like to frame these things by benchmarking because we are i suppose creatures of benchmark so it, that, that's about twice the size of diageo it's about the same size as nike and it's about one third the size of tesla so just to kind of frame how big is netflix today and that's kind of some benchmarks and as you said the numbers uh they were a mixed bag so their earnings per share uh were awesome they did yeah. $3.75 earnings per share, which is, as our, most of our listeners know, is the bottom line profit per individual share. And so three bucks seventy five earnings per share versus $2.95 expected. So that's obviously fantastic. They did revenue of $7.16 billion in the quarter, which is pretty much in line what uh, the, the consensus opinion was, I think 7.13 was expected. But really, the global net subscriber additions were just shy of 4 million versus an expectation of 6.2 million. So that was that was where the shock or the body blow was delivered. And And to quote directly, they said, we believe paid membership growth slowed due to the big COVID-19 pull forward in 2020 and a lighter content slate in the first half of the year due to COVID-19 production delays. Um, so what they were saying is that they don't believe competition. They added that they don't believe competition played a factor yeah. in the week's subscriber numbers. And we, we, we know like the competitive landscape has absolutely changed. It, it's unrecognizable to where it was three years ago. We've Disney Plus and uh, Hulu and HBO Max, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, uh, Comcast have uh, universe, uh, NBC Universal's Peacock, I think it is. So there's loads and loads of competitors. But what they said is that they expect to spend more than $17 billion cash on content this year. So bringing it to your point, James, which is, you know, the fact that they did very well at the Oscars, it's clear that the story of Netflix is changing and it's changing in two ways. One is that, well, previously the story was principally about subscriber growth. Now yeah. it's about margin growth and it's about filling the trophy cabinet with Oscars and related accolades that kind of put them like they're already a vertical player they're they're a vertical player entire, entirely inside uh the home entertainment but now they're producing the best of content right through to getting the oscars and distributing the movies rory were you gonna say something i think there? it's um yeah i think like um, you, you mentioned a lot of like the good stuff that came out on the call and we know like netflix always has these quarters i think they have them pretty much once a year where there is 
this drop or this missing subscriber numbers and it's always the same story it's always this pull forward and it comes obviously through the lockdown that was a major issue people were desperate for entertainment and were signing up to Netflix at a faster rate than usual yeah sorry just to add some context to that they they actually pulled in 16 million subscribers in quarter one last year which was you know obviously they seemed like one of the big first winners of the COVID-19 lockdown and maybe this is just the kind of the the hangover from the initial boost yeah, I mean, like it happened. It, like I said, it happens all the time. It happens sometimes when they release shows earlier than expected. You know, I remember Stranger Things two came out a few months earlier than expected, and, and and the following quarter, they had a problem with subscribers where they hadn't met the numbers that they expected. Funnily enough, one of the things that you know when we talk about competition, yeah, the competition landscape has changed a lot. We just got Alphabet's numbers last night, and what great numbers we saw from YouTube, which is now a six billion dollar yeah. business, and they said the growth in for US adults during the pandemic went from 73% of all adults to 81% in 2021. So YouTube has suddenly entered the game. And, you know, with Netflix, it's always a competition for eyeballs. I think uh, he once said his biggest competitor was sleep. Um, There's definitely a lot more places for eyeballs to go now. Uh, But still, I mean, looking at the the business as a whole, there was still some great numbers there. Focusing on subscriber growth doesn't look that great, but, you know, revenue is still up 24%. Price increases don't seem to be, you know, handling churn as much as they we thought they might do and they've got some great stuff lined up as you said they've even got i think they announced yesterday a new animation with lynn manuel miranda which uh you know if they're going after that disney plus audience that's definitely going to get them some subscribers well speaking of competitors there you know we mentioned youtube's incredible performance of the last quarter and disney notably were the second uh, biggest winner at the the oscars on sunday night do we still are we still confident that the kind of streaming land scape is is not a zero-sum game that there is enough room for all of these massive um companies that are are all backing this massive growth over the next few years i think so uh like francis mcdormand when she accepted the oscar for uh best actor um she she kind of asked the viewing world to get back to the big screen i think she said please watch our movies on the biggest screen available to you which is i suppose her extending the worry of the entire industry which is that the, that very landscape that you described, James, has utterly changed. They're, the way we consume movies now, we've been forced into a new habit and going back into a big theatre is something less likely even when the doors swing open again. Yeah, absolutely. And Marie, before we started this podcast, you made a point that it's perhaps becoming very difficult for traditional studios to compete with the likes of Netflix, not just in terms of viewership numbers, but in terms of actually getting top talent on board. Why do you think that is? Um, I guess I can just kind of see within the future that the types of films that are going to be produced, I think they're going to be pushed out towards the extremes. I think we're going to see very expensive traditional IP films being produced by massive studios like Disney, for example, which now controls Marvel and Star Wars and um, all of its kind of traditional IP that it's going to recreate into live action movies. We saw that this year with Mulan, which was a massive release and pushed a bunch of people onto Disney+. Plus. And then I think the second cheapest way for these streaming services to get content rather than producing it in-house is to buy up distribution rights for smaller independent films. So we talk about Nomadland, which won Best Picture this year. That was an independently produced film. I think it was made for something like less than $5 million. And then Hulu purchased the streaming rights and Hulu is controlled by Disney. And so I think the opportunity for creatives is very much going to be you either need to make the cheapest movie you can possibly make or you need to get inside one of these gigantic production companies and kind of work within the machine to make a giant film i think we're going to see a considerable squeeze for kind of mid-level 
uh, studios, for example, something like Paramount, like Lionsgate, like MGM, who have attempted to keep their content exclusive to themselves and release it through their own much smaller streaming platforms. So, for example, MGM is with Epics and Lionsgate is with Stars. But I really don't know, are smaller streaming services like that going to survive up against Disney and up against Netflix? And so I can see in the future that we will see massive studios like Disney beginning to buy up smaller studios, much like what happened about 10 years ago with um, music labels, where we went from about six major music labels to three as they began to eat each other alive, basically. Um, so I think that is going to definitely change the amount of the types of content that we're going to have because there are just going to be fewer people for artists to bring their content to. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I, yeah. I think from the consumer side as well, the big thing I'm certainly noticing after the past year is that with all the different uh, services I'm, I'm signing up to, it's, it's way more expensive than any cable bill ever was. Did I tell you, did I tell you my story about, about my friend Kate? Uh, actually, no. I didn't. I was going to tell you my story about Kate when Bumble IPO'd, but I didn't get around to it. Well, she met a guy who she thought was really nice and respectful. But guess what he asked her to do at the end of the date? He asked her to share her Netflix login and password. <laughs> Stranger danger. I mean, big time. Uh, uh, anyway, I presume Netflix heard about this. Hold on. No, wait, wait. So Netflix must have heard about this because they're testing a crackdown on password sharing. And, and their COO, Netflix, uh, uh, Greg Peters, I think, said that the company is working on making sure that people who are using Netflix account are the ones authorized to do so. But anyway, then the boss man, Reed Hastings, <laughs> then the boss man, Reed Hastings, said, oh, we test lots of things, but we'll never roll something out that feels like turning the screws but honestly i was listening going you heard about my friend kate on bumble that was just out of order no way i had no idea where that was going yeah that's that's a story you definitely wouldn't get away with on cnbc emmett let's move on then quickly um so 2021 has been a bit of a blockbuster year for ipos already with the likes of bumble as emma's already mentioned uh, coinbase and roblox all hitting the public markets last week we saw what was reportedly the third biggest software ipo on the u.s markets uipath rory you've been looking into uipath and even wrote a first look report on them for the my wall street app what are your initial thoughts on this company yeah, well, they are very much initial thoughts because I hadn't actually even heard of the industry that UiPath kind of operated in until I kind yeah. of started looking at them. Um, UiPath, yeah, uh, went public last week. They they actually ended up IPOing for less than their previous funding round. Um, but since then, the stock's been bought up by investors and now it's sitting at around a $37 billion market cap, which was around where it was kind of pitched at when their last private funding round came in. Um it's it's in the the RPA game, which is robotic robotic processing automation. And anyone who has ever used Microsoft Excel will be kind of familiar with this idea, which is if there is a kind of task uh, that needs that's kind of repetitive or menial, you could write a macro formula in Excel, which will basically let the computer do it all for you, and you can you can do lar- you can create large data sets and models through that. And that's been available since around nineteen eighty seven, whenever Excel was was launched. But RPA PA is a much it kind of allows companies to do this on a much larger scale and lets them do it across multiple applications. So if you're one of those people who's ever, I suppose, you know, whenever you're working as an intern or ever you were a junior in a company, you'd typically be given a job where you basically have to just get like a big large data set and transfer it across an application and it's time consuming and boring and menial. Um, and you know, those kind of jobs can now be very much automated and are being automated by companies like UiPath. And what it's doing is it's essentially allowing an awful lot of large companies to eliminate their reliance on 
uh, what's called BPO, business process outsourcing, in which tasks like that, tasks like do- document processing and data entry are essentially outsourced to countries with lower labor costs. Places like India, yeah. for example, have a very big BPO uh, industry. Um, at the moment, eight of the Fortune 10 and over 300 of the Fortune 500 clients use UiPath in some respect. Um, and it's a very high dollar base net retention business. So 145% over the last 12 months. And this kind of shows, we always like to see this in software companies, it shows that that what the what they're providing their clients is valuable uh, and that clients are spending more with them year over year because they're finding new ways of using it and they're finding value in the product. They're getting return on investment from it. Um, the company has seen very robust revenue growth up about 81% in fiscal 2021. On top of that, they have very high gross margins. Um, about 90% gross margins. Now, they're not yet profitable, but we're seeing signs of operational leverage uh, across the business. Um, Now, interestingly enough, 40% of the company's revenue is categorized under maintenance support. Um, And that, that, it hasn't dented gross margins, but it's something that I would find a little bit worrying because that would imply to me that the software isn't as user-friendly as maybe people think it is when they sign on to this product. If 40% of their revenues are coming from having to contact the company and get them to help out with this software, there's obviously something going on there where they need to, I don't know, make it easier or make it make it more user-friendly yeah. for the business. And in the whole kind of RPA space, um, Ernst & Young, a consultancy company, found that 30 to 50% of deployments end up failing due to organizational confusion or IT debt issues. Um, so it sounds there that there's a big opportunity for something like a good enough product uh, that could come in and possibly not be as complex as UiPath, but would get the job done. Um, and that could possibly undercut them on price, which enter Microsoft, because Microsoft have recently launched an RPA product uh, which is definitely not, you know, uh, nowhere near as robust as the UiPath platform but has a very distinct advantage of being free for anyone who uses Office yeah. 365. When uh, I was no. reading the report, Rory, I was getting real Slack versus Microsoft vibes off this. Yeah, you're definitely going to get some Slack te- Slack versus Teams ideas off this. And what we found with the Slack Teams uh, kind of um, rivalry was that companies were very willing to take a, a product that wasn't quite as good. It wasn't the kind of best-in-class product. But because it was free, it was just good enough. And and not only does Microsoft have that, it has the previous relationships with business and has great distribution through all its resellers. So so there were kind of the two big takes I, I took from from looking at UiPath. It's it's also got kind of competitive pressures from companies within the RPA space. There's another company called Automation Anywhere, and there's another one called Blue Prism. Now Blue Prism seems, as far as I can read, to have kind of fallen fallen behind the other two in terms of their product development, but Automation Anywhere has been noted as being more cloud-ready than UiPath. So there's a little bit of a kind of, there's good things and bad things to look at at the business. Like I said, it's the first time I've even looked into this this industry. And I suppose it all kind of rests on this idea of how far are these guys along in terms of AI? How far along is it before these products are working the way they're supposed to work? And and, and it's not just constantly calling people to sort out the problems that they haven't been able to figure out and that'll get better you know as they as they expand users and they get new use cases but at the moment it's it's um its valuation is pretty high 60 times sales uh now obviously you've got that robust revenue growth but 
are we going to see that maintain after the pandemic because we know an awful lot of these these companies have been looking into stuff like this with users working remotely so interesting business interesting you know a lot of things that we'd like to see in a business it's founder-led uh, the guy's high insider ownership was founded in Romania I think it's the first company I've ever looked at that, that began life in Romania yeah um, and this seems to have kind of a happy workforce uh, rapid revenue growth so a lot of ticks in the boxes but yeah again valuation very high I also noticed that the CEO, uh, founding CEO, Daniel Dines, uh, has the largest, he, he controls 88% of the voting power because they created two classes of share. And I think their B shares um, have 35 votes per share, where the A shares, which are the ones that are listed, have just one vote per share. So um, I think we're basically looking um, at a business that whatever Daniel Dines wishes goes, you know, it's, and, it's, and- that, that's obviously a concern for investors, Emmett, is it? It is, yeah. I mean, it's it's good to have insiders with interest and, you know, with, with a meaningful stake in the business. But when you when it's a, a kingdom, in this case, what the king says goes uh, and dines now with 85% of the voting power, or sorry, 88% of the voting power, you know, means really, well, we just hope that he's a good guy. I don't know anything about him. I presume he's only going to act in the business's best interest. But whatever opinions we have on matters to do with voting doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, he's, it, it, what, he's it, what he says is the last word. Yeah. Yeah. We've, I mean, we've seen this before with dual class share ownership. And I suppose this is the first time we've seen it brought to a kind of the absurdist final end of what's, you know, where it's going to go, where someone just owns the entire company forever. And, and there's nothing we can really do about that. <laughs> Let's move on then. And millionaires across the country were crying into their top hats last week after Bloomberg reported that the Biden administration was planning on hiking up the amount of capital gains tax they would have to pay. Officially announced this morning, just an hour before we started recording, so we we really didn't have much time to prep this. The proposed hikes under the American Families Plan Act would see the US households making over $1 million, which is the top 0.3% of all households, according to the White House, paying the same 39.6% tax rate on all of their income, including returns on investments. Just for context, the current rate of capital gains tax for this group is about 20%. Emmett, well, it's quite early, or it's a bit early to see what the the effects of this will be. Last week, when the rumours about this came out, we saw a lot of panic on Wall Street and and the the indexes suffered as, I suppose, people pulled their money out of the market. What are your thoughts on this? How, How will this affect, I suppose, the ordinary retail investor? Well, as I've always said, I'm no economist, James, so thank you for offering me the chance to prove it in public. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, most individuals who manage to better their situation through investing, of which I'm one, land on a gripe with the fact that every investment they ever made was after paying tax. And then they forewent to pleasure, invested their savings, and then at a later date found that they're going to be taxed yet again. Yeah. So they're taxed at the start. They accept all the risk and are taxed on exit. So, you know, rather than just announce that I think CGT is a disgrace, I disappeared down a rabbit hole to research it. And, you know, I conclude that the balance between income tax and CGT, capital gains tax, is an incredibly complex equation that appears to have been introduced with a light amount of research, as I said, in the US in 1913 and refined in virtually every country in the world ever since. So like capital gains are, and I just, I've opened Wiki right here. It says capital gain taxes are disproportionately paid by high income households since they are more likely to own assets that generate 
the taxable gains. So that makes sense. But what CGT is, without any doubt, is an obstacle to a sale. So capital remains tied up that otherwise would flow in an economy. If CGT, if CGT is perceived as too high, the asset owner will decide I'm not selling it. And, yeah. and actually, JT and I, my co-founder uh, and I had a chat with a, a business owner, a building owner in the middle of Dublin City, who has left at a kind of a crown jewel location property by his father in his will. And the gentleman we were speaking to was mature in years and had no interest in selling it because he had such resentment to the CGT tax level in this country. So, you know, he'd rather go to the grave than pay CGT, which I suppose is an anecdote that illustrates it is an obstacle to a sale. But in some respect, then, is capital gains tax a good thing because it encourages people to hold on to stock investments, particularly yeah, longer? Totally. I think so. I mean, as much as uh, I, it's an annoyance to me, it has accidentally made me do some really good things. <laughs> like, I, as, I, as I've said, in the past, I've been a shareholder in Netflix for like 17 or 18 years. And there were times I'm pretty sure where the CGT stopped me from selling. Yeah. But um, I think what we're looking at with, with Biden's announcement or the White House announcement this morning is that like 997 out of every 1,000 households in the country will not be affected by this tax. Yeah. So to your very first question, what does it mean for the average woman and man on the street who is trying to better their situation? And the answer is for the vast, vast majority of people, it means nothing or yeah. very, very little. So, you know, um, I, I actually, I, I didn't, and I thought that the street's reaction was, it surprised me a little bit because yeah. when the rumor, you know, hit the wire, uh, it the, the the market responded positively, which is is typical of the inverse logic we see a lot of these days. Where um, when what would have once been considered bad news is kind of upended and becomes good news because people were expecting something, and now that the the negative news is out there, they know what they're dealing with. Rory, I saw you were making a joke on Twitter about the fact that over here in Ireland, you were laughing at American investors worrying over this, seeing as over here in Ireland, we pay much higher uh, capital gains tax rates. Yeah, well, it's hard to kind of feel any sympathy for them when we're for the millionaires anyway, when we pay a <laughs> regressive tax rate across the board, which isn't time bound in any way. So there's no incentive for younger people who haven't got vast amounts of income to invest. There's no in, there's no incentive for them to hold over the long term. And it's I'm kind of upset he didn't actually go further with this and perhaps start moving it out further where, you know, people under a certain um, income bracket would pay very little tax if they held yeah. for something like five to 10 years, because that's really how you end up building building generational wealth amongst people who haven't, you know, inherited a fortune or who weren't born in the top five, ten percent of the population. Um, but yeah, look, it's a move in the right direction, I suppose. Yeah, I saw Chamath, um, Social Capital's uh, founder, reacted to Biden's proposal by uh, like kind of uh, suggesting how the, there should be a sliding scale on, on mm. CGT. And he said that less than one year, the CGT tax should be 75% and it slides outwards. So after 10 years, there's no CGT whatsoever, which, you know, would highly incentivize us as long-term investors to stick by our resolve. But I'm afraid Biden didn't pick up on that tweet and the news is out there. I think he'd, have paid, big... uh, he'd have made very little off those virgin shares, I suppose. 
<laughs> Meow. I think I think one of the biggest takeaways is probably a lot of uh, cryptocurrency millionaires realizing that there is actually such a thing as ca- capital gains tax yes, and realizing yeah. I actually have to pay money on this. Yes, actually, I was speaking to one of them before the pandemic broke out when we were in uh, my Wall Street HQ. Someone came in to me and he had made in any through any barometer of fortune on Bitcoin. He was just a, a full-time coder who understood the trend way before the rest of us. And I mentioned CGT to him and he actually had never heard of it, didn't even know what I was talking about. Well, so there a, is, I'm sure a... there, are, there is a generation of, uh, of new millionaires, I suppose, who haven't even figured yet that they owe tax. And the real risk is if they don't pay it when it's due, it starts to accrue interest. And when eventually they realize, or the local tax man realizes, troubles afoot. Yeah, it'll be a pretty rude wake-up call. So let's move on then and take a quick check-in on what's going on in my Wall Street at the moment. We're coming towards the end of another month, which means that there's a new Stock of the Month report, a new Stock of the Month podcast, and a brand new stock edition in our shortlist at the moment. You can also get access to loads more great investing insights, including Rory's first look report on UiPath, and Anne-Marie's recent update on the incredible turnaround of Chipotle Mexican Grill. Plus, May's Stock of the Month selection will be added to the app this Monday, May 3rd, and it's one you really don't want to miss out on. It's only May members of the my wall street community that get access to all of this great stuff so if you want to check it out just tap the link in the notes for today's show and start your free trial jargon busters um Emmett, i'm going to come to you first and two weeks ago we were hitting some big news that stitch fix uh ceo and founder katrina lake was stepping down from her role we added stitch fix to the my wall street shortlist just over two years ago and i know you were a big fan of the company particularly its ai recommender system has your opinion changed on stitch fix now that lake is departing Emmett? I think it's a pity she's leaving. Um, she, the world needs a founding uh, CEO, a female founding CEO who's brought something from inception through to mega heights. Now it already is at mega heights, but I, I'd rather she have stayed. We like passion. We like founding CEOs irrespective, but I think Katrina Lake was a really great uh, figurehead for the business and she was a great uh, woman in leadership. Um, so I think it's a pity. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would it causes me pause yeah for sure yeah okay cool thanks for that um here's a question that came in via the my wall street app from joseph he asked what stocks would be a hedge against the growth stocks in the current current environment rory any thoughts on that um in terms of hedging if you're not going to go down the kind of derivative path um the only kind of way to to kind of hedge is the wrong word but the only kind of protect your way against a drop in high growth stocks is just not own too many of them um yeah the, you know the diversify your portfolio a little bit and i think you know if you if you're going to be one of these investors who holds only high growth tech stocks you are going to have to deal with the volatility that comes with it and, and that can as we've seen in the recent path and and, and further afield can be very painful at times you can see your entire portfolio drop 20 30 percent in the matter of a couple of days so it's it's not that difficult a thing to build into a portfolio a couple of you know more slow growers you know Peter Lynch reckoned there was six type of different stocks there's plenty of companies that are a bit more stable but still grow at great speeds things like Google for example Amazon are both all in the tech industry as well but still manage to grow very fast over the period of a year without seeing these kind of 20-30% plummets uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna end up on the kind of lower side of the scale with companies that are small cap or mid cap, prepare yourself for that kind of volatility because that's that's what you're you're dealing with. That's the way you get that kind of incredible growth number that people have seen in 2020 when their portfolio grew two three x over the course of a year. 
you recommended the Home Depot as stock of the month back in December. Would stocks like that be another way of kind of diversifying your portfolio away from growth stocks? Yeah, I mean, like you, as we've talked about before, there's loads of different ways to diversify your portfolio through market cap, through industry, through geography. Through market cap is one way where you can easily diversify your portfolio and have some big hitters as kind of anchors uh, of your portfolio, things that, you know, hold the whole thing together when when the market's reacting badly. Um, companies like Home Depot are great like that. Companies like MasterCard are great like that. You know, th- uh, There's a whole host of businesses. Nike, another great example of businesses that are, are growing year over year. You know, these are not slow companies that don't do anything. They're just large, so they don't yeah. get the same kind of... 2x returns every year but they're still growing they're still attributing uh, to your portfolio and when the market goes a bit wonky when there's a sector rotation for example you're not going to feel like your whole world's collapsing you know you're going to have something there that's keeping the whole boat afloat some ballast in the ship if you will I've just noticed here that Home Depot is actually up over 20% since you picked it back in December. So maybe it's unfair to say it's not a growth stock. You heard it here first. Uh, the last question we got it's in a, is... It's a slow growth stock. <laughs> by, by the way, James, I actually, um, not too long ago on Twitter, asked a question that said something like, if you were to buy only one stock with a market cap below 20 billion and hold it for the next 30 years, what would you choose? And that kind of forced people to come back with well, the more rational people to come back with businesses that at least will still be around in 20 or 30 years. And actually Bill Mann, a pal of mine from The Motley Fool, an absolute master investor, responded with a company that I hadn't really given any attention to. And it's called Watsco, uh, W-S-O is its ticker. It's very interesting for anyone who's um, uh, really looking for a low-risk way to invest um it pays a really great dividend and i think has a, a great future and it keeps outperforming quarter after quarter so that's just a name that i think is worth looking at what do they do i think they they, they air conditioning servicing okay. yeah <laughs> uh, the- I, I think that's what they do it's it's very unglamorous yeah but it's nonetheless um yeah they they uh, distribute air conditioning heating and refrigeration equipment and related parts and supplies in the united states canada mexico and puerto rico sounds fascinating <laughs> let's move on then the final question we got in is from paul asking about our thoughts on palantir rory i know you'd been looking at palantir around the time it went public late last summer what are your thoughts on it now yeah so before it went public i looked at the s1 and i read a uh, quite interesting article i was in the new york times magazine called techie software soldier spy uh, which is a great long read and kind of looked into the business uh, from that journalist point of view anyway and in that article she kind of pointed out a couple of issues that Palantir had been having and notably that there was an awful lot of kind of pilots that they launched um, that had just been total failures Uh, uh, one called Metropolis which was designed for financial institutions was noted to be an unmitigated failure there was a a joint venture Credit Suisse um, that was there to kind of police the bank's own employees that was called in air quotes a complete bust um, and I'd been working on a number of projects with the police forces that you would think would kind of be a natural evolution from Palantir's kind of cornerstone work with the US military, but none of that had kind of come to fruition. Yeah. And a term that kept coming up in that piece was this idea of RFOP, which stands for Room Full of People. And it, it got into this idea that in terms of data, in terms of storing data and looking at data, it's only really worth investing if the program works by itself. You know, if you're if you're relying on a room full of people to constantly come in and clean up the data, similar to kind of what we talked about earlier with UiPath, if you're relying on constant on the company keeping come back to keep working the system over, 
then it it looks a lot more impressive than it actually is and you end up kind of you know keep investing money into it over and over again to try and make it work I've kind of looked a bit more closely at it now and as a company I can see signs of where it is breaking away from that idea you know it's as you know companies are dealing with this massive explosion of data um, causing huge problems because they just don't know what to do with it it's often siloed across various parts of the organization it's very hard to combine historical data sets in a way that makes them readable or or in a way that gives you a holistic view of your operations and now the company still does seem to have problems in terms of how many of its pilot programs actually make it to fruition i think there was a a report by the standish group now this again came out at the during the p1 where it said only 12 percent of large and five percent of organization organization wide platforms were ever deemed successful um and gave an example of the u.s military which spent over one of the u.s military agencies which spent over a billion dollars building an ERP system from scratch and this project was never delivered and never, and uh, unsuccessfully concluded. So, but I, there is kind of things you can see with Palantir where they have a system where they send engineers to different industries during every time. So each time they're building up a knowledge base of yeah. ways to tackle various problems. And in terms of, you know, one example is they developed a feature for the oil and gas industry, which was retooled for the medical industry when it came to allocating protective equipment during the coronavirus pandemic. And um, they've got a partnership with, uh, called Skywise with Airbus, uh, which connects over 100 airlines, 15 different suppliers and 9000 aircrafts uh, in integrating flight engineering and operations data. And that, uh, that, it seems, is taking down the amount of time it's taking to implement these systems and it is making them a little bit more cost effective. Uh, still not totally sold on the business. There's plenty of things not to like about it, I think. Yeah. Um, the the CEO, he's obviously a very good businessman. He's one of those people I don't think you'd want to go for a beer with. No. But, <laughs> you know, inter- and there, there's not many of them, Rory. <laughs> That's true for me anyway. I'll go for a beer with anyone. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm still on the sideline. I'm more... I'm more inclined towards it than I was at the time of the S1 because I'm starting to see suggestions that it is more than just a room full of people, that they are developing systems that are letting it scale um, properly. And I'll take a closer look at it because it is, it has just kind of passed that point where we would consider it to add to my Wall Street. Okay, cool. Thanks for that, Rory. So let's get on to the elevator pitch before we end today's show. So Anne-Marie, you survived your first elevator pitch last week. You've survived for another week, so we're going to give you another go again. And I believe you have pretty unexpected stock to pitch us here. Yes, I have. I'm, well, I'm pitching a stock, but I guess more importantly, I'm kind of pitching a consumer trend that we can all take a look at. So I am going to pitch Burlington, which is its stock symbol is Burl, B-U-R-L. It, it used to be known as the Burlington Coat Factory. It's apparently been rebranded since I was last there to buy my communion dress. Um, and it's <laughs> and it's kind of most famous, I guess, pop culture moment was it was referenced in an episode of The Office one time. And Michael Scott said, if you go to Burlington Coat Factory with $645, you are literally a king. Um <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it's one of these kind of off-price discounted retailers. It it would be similar to TJ Maxx or Ross or Marshalls. Burlington is the kind okay. of smallest 
version of these stores. And the reason I like it is because it kind of took a calculated risk at the beginning of the pandemic. So in March of 2020, the company made the decision to permanently close down its website, which just seems completely counterintuitive to the kind of context of the pandemic. Um, But the reason it decided to do this was before the pandemic, it was only bringing in less than 1% of their sales. And um, I think that Burlington was very good at kind of identifying what its strength was, was that these stores are um, all have different inventory because they kind of buy up um, excess from designers. They buy up stuff that traditional department stores don't want or can't sell. And so it means that there's a constant inventory turnover. And most department stores inventory sits for months in a Burlington. It can sit for maybe six weeks before it gets turned over again. And so it means that there's a really random selection. Um, and kind of this last quarter, we saw Burlington really kind of taking advantage of the fact that maybe the antithesis to e-commerce is this kind of treasure hunt shopping that consumers are interested in. Um, We talk about like the strength of Etsy is the fact that people can go on there and find kind of items that no one else can have. They're all really unique. They come from artists. Burlington is kind of the in-person version of that. And they're kind of riding a considerable wave after the pandemic because when these department stores began to close down, they... Um, stopped ordering from a lot of major designers. And so now designers have a massive backlog of um, items that they've produced over the last year that they're just basically handing out to retailers like Burlington. And so in their last quarter, they are basically back to their pre-pandemic numbers and their top line was 4% higher. And they, in 2021, plan to open 62. They In 2020, they opened 62 new stores and they plan to open 100 more in 2021. That being said, the stock is up 100% in the last year, so a lot of people are taking notice. Oh, what isn't? Come on, that's nothing. I know, yeah. <laughs> they so, must have been one um, of the only retailers actually opening stores last year. Yeah, they definitely were, the, and, it, and it has caught people's attention most definitely, but I think that it and its kind of uh, contemporaries, TJ Maxx, Ross, and Marshalls, I think are going to ride a kind of trend wave as we begin to enter the pandemic. People want to go into stores. They want to look for individual items, and the only place to kind of do that is these places, and I think it's the exact same trend that is causing people to be really interested in purchasing secondhand items. It's because they want to yeah. find a sweater that somebody's grandmother has had for 40 years and so that they can wear it and look like Harry styles and so i i think burlington should continue to have success in kind of the next year to two years absolutely what That's a pitch a they pitch. should re-release that thrift shop song yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not i would prefer if that didn't uh, come back out to be honest so that's it from this week's stock club don't forget about all the great new stuff in the my wall street app at the moment if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode make sure to get in touch you can find us on twitter that's at my wall street hq or email us at pod at my that's p-o-d at my don't forget to subscribe to stock club and if you're enjoying the podcast please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on that's it from us here today we'll talk to you in two weeks happy investing hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.